Take your copy of God's Word. Let me invite you to uh, be turning with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. I want to return uh, to this particular chapter that we've been in a study of over the last several weeks, uh, going all the way back to Easter Sunday. We began looking at this passage, and 1 Corinthians 15 deals with the subject of resurrection. The first 11 verses or so, um, the Apostle Paul deals with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and how the gospel is this declaration, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and raised to life on the third day according to the scriptures. And then the Apostle Paul deals with the evidence for the resurrection as far as eyewitness testimony Uh, He even mentions his own personal experience as an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection. And along about verse 12 of the chapter, he transitions to dealing with this subject of the believer's resurrection and the doctrine of the resurrection in general. And there were some in Corinth who had been... um, sort of spreading this false idea that there was no bodily resurrection. And that went back to a prevailing philosophy that was true of the Greek culture that ruled out the existence of bodily resurrection. And so there were some in the church at Corinth who were confused. And so that's why Paul writes back to these Corinthians and he's dealing with that. And he says, if Christ is not risen then our faith would be pointless. You would still be in your sins. There would ultimately be no hope beyond the grave. He says in verse 19 that if in this life only we had hope in Christ, we of all people would be the most to be pitied. And then in verse 20 he says, in fact, Christ has been risen from the dead. So it's not just a matter of theory, but this is fact. Christ is risen from the dead. So I want to begin reading with verse 20. I know we've looked at verses 20 through 28. I want to kind of back up. I won't deal with those verses at length, but I do want to establish uh, really verses 29 through verse 34. I want you to, I want to deal with those verses and we'll look at them in context. But verse 20, the Bible says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it said all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Now, essentially what Paul is saying is that there's an order to the resurrection. Christ is the first fruits. Uh, 
of a future resurrection harvest, those who are in Christ, believers, they too are going to be given resurrection bodies. When will that happen? Well, Paul says in the text, it will happen at the return of Jesus. The dead in Christ will rise. They'll be the first to receive their resurrection bodies. And uh, Christ will return to earth. He will establish his kingdom. It'll be a 1,000-year kingdom upon the earth, after which he's going to deliver that kingdom to God the Father. And then comes the end. And ultimately, everything in the universe, there's not going to be one hint of sin or rebellion to be found anywhere in the universe. And that's what Paul is saying there through verse number 28. Now look at verse 29. He says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. So in this chapter thus far, Paul has dealt with the fact that our gospel is a resurrection gospel. Because of that, believers live with resurrection hope. Verses 20 through 28, he emphasizes that believers have a resurrection guarantee. Our resurrection is guaranteed because of Christ's own resurrection. Our resurrection is just as sure as the tomb of Jesus is empty. But now, in verses 29 through 34, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying we now have this resurrection incentive. In other words, the resurrection and the truth of bodily resurrection impacts the way that we live our lives as believers. And so there are some very practical implications uh, that are brought about by this truth of resurrection. The fact that Jesus is our risen Lord and that we've been raised to new life in him. Folks, let me tell you, this impacts our life at a very practical level. And that's what Paul is saying in these verses that we come to here in this text. So I want to speak from that subject this morning, resurrection incentive. Now, if you went all the way back to the book of Acts, you would see how the early church lived their life, they served God with this hope of resurrection, and it greatly impacted the way that they gave witness to Christ. I think about Stephen for just an example. Here's someone who truly lived and served with this resurrection incentive. You you read about Stephen's story in Acts chapter 7, the first Christian martyr. He's a man who's put to death for his testimony. Uh, Literally, he is stoned to death with stones by his persecutors, and it's all because he gave witness to the truth that Christ is the Son of God, crucified, buried, and raised to life again. Now, do you think for one split second that he would have offered himself to his persecutors if he didn't think that he had something far better in Christ than this world had to offer him? No, he's, he's willing to face his own death and martyrdom for Christ's sake because he lived with resurrection hope and he had resurrection incentive. 
And that's not just true of him, but uh, that's something that's also true of, of the early church. It's true of the disciples. It's true of those early Christians who were put to death for their faith in Roman Colosseums. It's the point that's made in Hebrews chapter 11 with all of those uh, faithful servants of God who've lived throughout redemptive history. They lived with this resurrection incentive. Hebrews 11.35 says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. They willingly endured hardship in this life for the sake of the gospel because they realized that this life is not all that there is. In fact, it's only a drop in the bucket compared to the truth of resurrection. So in this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, the verses that we've looked at, there are at least four incentives, resurrection incentives, that I want to point out from the text. Right? Notice, number one, that as believers, because of the resurrection, we now have an incentive to face the future with joy. And if I were to just summarize what Paul is saying in verses 20 through 28, the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead, and he's the first fruits of a future resurrection harvest, that's believers. The guarantee of this future resurrection gives us as believers incentive to face the future, not with this sense of fear and dread, but with a sense of joy, with the outlook of eager enthusiasm. Now, I don't know about you, but do you look to the future with that kind of joy and enthusiasm? You think about the future, you think, man, I don't know what the future holds for my family. I don't know what the future holds for my job. I don't know what the future holds for our country, the route that we're continuing to go. Who knows where we're headed as a country? And if we're not careful, we can allow the circumstances of life to sort of, we can respond with this type of uh, uh, hopeless, depressed attitude toward the circumstances of life. But folks, as a believer who has resurrection hope, that's not how we ought to live our lives. You remember the Winnie the Pooh cartoon? Listen, I, I despised Eeyore. <laughs> Most people did. I never, I've not met anybody who just liked Eeyore. Most people liked Piglet or Tigger just bouncing all over the place. And Tigger comes along and, you know, hoo 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 you know, just... Uh, Good morning, he would say to Eeyore, and, and Eeyore would respond usually by saying something like this, well, I suppose it is for some. <laughs> you know, that's something that a Christian never has to say. Amen. Because no matter the circumstances of life, it is a good morning. It is a good morning. Listen, Bill Gaither said it best when he wrote these words, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And so we sing those lyrics, but really I wonder if we understand what we're saying. So the fact that Jesus is risen, this is something that gives me hope and joy for the future. And again, my resurrection in the future is guaranteed. I don't have to worry over what the future might hold for me. I don't have to live my life with this sense of dread and anxiety and fear. Jesus said as much in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. In about 10 verses, at least three or four times, Jesus uses this, this statement. He says, don't be anxious. That word uh, that he uses there, it's the word merimnao in Greek. It means to be loaded down with cares. 
This idea of just having the joy sucked out of your life because of the cares of life and the stresses of life and things like what we eat, what we drink, what we put on our body. We don't have to live with this sense of worry because we have a heavenly father who's going to take care of his own and the, the, the truth of resurrection is something that gives me joy for the future. So that's an incentive to live my life with joy, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, there's a second incentive here in the text. Not only do we have incentive to face the future with joy, but notice the resurrection gives us an incentive to follow Christ in baptism. Verse 29 Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, someone says that is a very strange verse. It may, in fact, be one of the strangest verses in the entire New Testament. What does this mean to be baptized on behalf of the dead? You know, Mormons have developed this practice of vicarious baptism, and they, they rip this verse out of its context in 1 Corinthians 15. And so Mormon theology says that you can be baptized on behalf of your dead ancestors. If you want someone in your distant past, uh, a relative of yours, uh, if you want them to be in heaven, you want to be sure that they're in heaven, you can be baptized by proxy on their behalf, which is why the Mormon church puts so much emphasis on ancestry. I think they're the, you know, they're behind ancestry.com if I'm not mistaken. And it, really it's taken from this verse right here. But is that what Paul is saying here? It's not. Uh, Orthodox Christianity has known nothing throughout the, his, uh, the, the centuries of baptism by proxy. It could be that there was some practice that was true in Corinth that has been lost to history that the church was aware of, but it wasn't certainly a Christian practice. Some scholars think that, well, perhaps that may be something Paul is referring to but I really believe it's not that complicated because I think that the overall context of what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 it explains verse 29. He's been dealing with the fact, if you went all the way back to verse 16, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And so then, by that line of logic, which I believe he's coming back to in verse 29, why be baptized on behalf of a dead man? Christian baptism is a, it's a symbol, uh, an outward symbol of an inward transformation. And the act of baptism itself, it's a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. It's a picture of the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the fact that you as a believer have now been brought into union with Christ. And so the first act of obedience for any new believer, they're to follow Christ in baptism. I believe Paul is simply saying, if Christ is still dead and buried, what's the point of baptism? So the resurrection then gives me this incentive to follow Jesus in obedience to his command and be baptized. Now water baptism does not save anybody. When we baptize people in this baptistry here behind me, I can assure you that the water in that baptistry, it's just city of high point water. There is no intrinsic saving value in that water. It's a picture. It's a picture. So baptism, water baptism, is an outward symbol of an inward change. It's, it's an outward public testimony of faith. 
This is the way that a person professes his or her faith in Jesus Christ. They're obedient to follow through with baptism by immersion. And see, people say, well, you Baptists, man, y'all sure are sticklers when it comes to putting people under the water. Why is that? It's because of what the picture represents. It means to immerse. The word means to immerse. And it's a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. When we baptize new believers and they're lowered under the water, they're immersed in the water, that's a picture of a watery grave and the fact that they have died with Christ. Their old man is dead. But you know what? We don't leave people in the water. Unless you're coming from certain denominations and we hold you under a little bit longer. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just... No, a person is brought out of the water of baptism, and that's a picture of the resurrection life that they now have and the fact that they are united with Christ to endless life. Isn't that just a beautiful picture? Now, Paul deals with this at length in the sixth chapter of Romans. You may want to flip over to Romans 6 for just a moment. Romans 6, verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, again, he's not referring to water baptism there. But he's talking about a person who has been immersed into the life of God. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes you and makes you a member of the body of Christ. You're brought into this vital, legal union with Jesus Christ. The life of God comes to take up residence with you, within you. So verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That word united there is a very important word. It comes from the world of horticulture, like where you would take branches off of one tree, graft them into another tree, and the idea is that when you accept Christ, the Spirit takes the dead branch of your life and grafts it into Christ's living vine, and his life starts to flow into you. You're made alive in Jesus Christ. And so this union then that the believer now experiences in Jesus Christ has both a negative aspect and a positive aspect. The negative aspect is this. I've been brought into union with Christ in a death like his. That means when Christ died on the cross as a believer, listen to me, my old life was crucified with Christ when Christ was crucified. Dead, buried in the tomb. Which means that if you're a believer, that your sins have been dealt with at the cross. The old you, who you were in Adam, has been crucified with Christ. Your sins have been dealt with. It is absolutely imperative that you understand this as a Christian man or woman. You'll never live with victory until you understand your legal union with Christ. Your vital union with Christ. The old you, that sinful part of you, it's been crucified with Christ. Christ, Jesus paid it all. He paid the debt. 
But the positive side of this is that now you have been raised to endless life because Christ has been raised. And again, Paul deals with this in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And he gave himself for me. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 4, 5, and 6. By grace, you've been saved. We've been raised up with Christ, seated in heavenly places in Christ. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So that's, that's who you are in Jesus Christ. So coming back to this issue then in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29, water baptism is merely a picture of this spiritual reality that's true of the believer, the believer's union with Christ. And if Christ isn't raised, Paul is simply saying, why be baptized in the name of a dead man? Right? It would be nothing but an empty ritual. Baptism would be nothing but ritualism. But it does mean something It's the first act of obedience that Jesus commands his followers to be obedient to simply because it's a picture of the union that they have with him. Now, I want to ask you this question on a personal level. Have you been baptized? In the spiritual sense, have you been brought into the life of God, the body of Christ? Has the life of God come to take up residence in you? Have you been converted? Are you genuinely a Christian? You say, well, I try to do good. I try to come to church. I try to... Listen, that's not, the, that's, not the, that's not the right answer. A Christian is not someone who does. A Christian is someone who is because Christ has done. You understand? So listen to me. Baptism then is an outward symbol of that inward change. Have you been baptized? So you've got incentive to because of the resurrection. I've got incentive to face the future with joy. I've got incentive now to face, uh, to be obedient to baptism. And then number three, there's a third incentive. Because of the resurrection, Paul says we now have this incentive to forfeit personal comforts. All in the name of the mission of God in the world. Now notice he, he, he begins asking this question in verse 32, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brethren, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I die every day. It's this idea of him picking up his cross and following Jesus in discipleship every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now someone says, what in the world is he referring to here? More than likely, he's referring to his experience in Ephesus, which we're told about in Acts chapter 19. You remember, Paul spent two years uh, planting the church there in Ephesus, and the city, the landscape of the city was changed so much so that there was a guy in the city by the name of Demetrius, a silversmith, who made these silver idols to the goddess Diana. And so many people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ that the silversmith's business took a hit. And so what does Demetrius do? He, he stirs up a stink in Ephesus, and 
And basically it results in a riot and everyone rushes into the arena there in Ephesus. And so more than likely that's what the Apostle Paul is referring to here. Dealing with those beasts, the beastly character of people in Ephesus who persecuted the gospel in in Paul's ministry. So here's what he's saying. Why in the world would I forsake personal comfort if Christ were not raised? Why would I follow Jesus in obedience, discipleship, at great risk to my own safety and my own health and well-being? Why would I do that if I didn't have this hope of future resurrection? Apart from the resurrection, it would all be a waste if there were not something greater than this life. No, Paul says, I die every day. I lay my life down in obedience to Jesus every day in light of the glorious fact that I will one day be resurrected. Now, I don't know about you. I'm sure this is not true of you, but I I often find myself tempted to complain about my circumstances that are often painful and unwanted. I know y'all don't ever wrestle with that. That's just only a few of us that do that. But, But then when I read Paul's testimony of what he experienced in gospel ministry, it makes me kind of want to shut my mouth. Here's what he said in 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own countrymen, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren. In toil, hardship, through many a sleepless night, Uh, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold exposure. He says, and apart from other things, as if that wasn't enough, he said, there's this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Now, the thing is, often our main concern is to elevate our own levels of personal comfort and happiness. And we buy into this way of thinking that God is simply committed to my personal happiness, or at least he ought to be committed to my personal happiness. And when something happens in my life that I find painful, all of a sudden, God, are you against me? And I read Paul's experience with pain and hardship for the sake of the gospel, And and his personal experience blows this prosperity gospel thinking out of the water. This idea that God is merely interested in you having your best life now. That's foreign to the New Testament. But here's what New Testament Christianity says. Because we have hope of a better resurrection, we can forego personal comfort. We can forego personal safety. We can forego my comfort for the sake of God's mission in the world. Which, by the way, the mission of God in the world has always been advanced when the church got uncomfortable. That is, when the church and her safety, in terms of in the world, where she is in the world, she's always done more for the kingdom of God when her personal safety 
has been at stake. Hello. We've bought into this idea of safeism. The most important thing in our life now is just safeism. Safe. The gospel has never been advanced in the world when the church has been in its holy huddle. But when the church has been willing, because it has a resurrection incentive, to go to the least of these, to take the gospel to my neighbor, to take the gospel to the nations, God's kingdom, his agenda is advanced. And the resurrection is what gives us that incentive to, to serve, to give, to forego personal comfort for Christ's sake. You know, C.S. Lewis, he said something in his book, The Weight of Glory. He said, like a good chess player, the devil is always trying to maneuver you into a position where you can save your castle only by losing your bishop. Now, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't know a thing in the world about chess. But I do understand that it's a game of strategy that involves maneuvering and strategies that force us into making a choice. And so on the chessboard, you've got castles or the rook. It's more powerful than the bishop. And so when faced with a choice, a player will often sacrifice the bishop in order to save a more powerful rook or castle. Now, C.S. Lewis uses that as an illustration, and the idea is castles, these are the strongholds of secular power. These are the things that the world around us says are important. Appearances, money, prestige, what the crowd says about you, all that kind of stuff, the world says this is important. Bishops, in Lewis's illustration, bishops represent the faith spiritual thing, the things of God. The devil is more than happy for you to forfeit the bishop so that you can hold on to your sandcastle. And so every one of us are going to have to make a choice. Am I going to be willing to forego the sandcastles of life and just hold on to the stuff that I have in life loosely? The resurrection is what gives me the incentive to do just that. Now, the last thing that I want you to see here as far as an incentive that the resurrection provides, it's this incentive. Now we've got an incentive to forsake sin and pursue holiness. I've got joy as far as the future is concerned. I've got an, an incentive to follow Christ in obedience and baptism. I can forego my personal comforts for the sake of God's mission because of the resurrection, but now I've got this incentive to forsake sin in pursuit of personal holiness, which by the way, going back to that passage in Romans chapter six, that's exactly what Paul is saying there when he's uh, teaching believers about their union with Christ. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So this is what he's saying here in verse 33 and 34 of 1 Corinthians 15. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. In other words, this philosophy that you've bought into that there is no bodily resurrection, that's going to impact the way you're living your life on a practical level. So wake up from your drunken stupor, he says, as is right. Don't go on sinning. 
So he's warning the church against this deception that comes from wrong philosophy. What we think, what we believe determines how we live. And instead of following the world and its thinking, he's calling on the church to wake up and live soberly. To live a repentant lifestyle that doesn't go on sinning. But now we've got incentive to pursue holiness. And it's not in order to be accepted by God, but it's because we've been accepted by God in Christ. You understand that? Obedience in the Christian life, it's never out of a sense of being accepted by God, but it's always born out of the fact that I have been accepted by God in Christ. And so love then is the motive for obedience in the Christian's life. See, now we live in a generation where, where holiness preaching and teaching sounds like legalism to a lot of people. And so whenever we emphasize, you know, sin and avoiding sin and turning from sin, let me tell you something. Holiness is very much a part of the Christian life. You've been declared holy in Jesus Christ, but now you've been freed to pursue the holiness of God in Christ because you've been accepted. I can't think of any greater motive for obedience in my life than to know that Jesus paid it all for me. That he died the death that I should have died, but now he's given me his resurrection life. And it's Christ living in me as a believer that empowers me to do the very things that he commands me to do. I can't remember who it was that said it, but God's commandments are his enablements. He never commands you to do something that he doesn't equip you with the power to do. So as far as holiness of life is concerned, you've got a resident helper in the Holy Spirit, the life of God in you. It requires you understanding that and yielding to his power in your life. So we've got great incentive. The resurrection gives us this incentive and it drastically changes the way we live our lives. It gives me joy as far as my future is concerned. It makes baptism to Jesus that much more important. It means my personal comforts in this life. This is not what ultimately matters. And it teaches me to forsake sin in pursuit of personal holiness. It was Jim Elliott who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This past week, I found myself reading up on the life of a fellow. His name was Richard Cameron. And Richard Cameron was a Christian leader who lived in Scotland in the 1600s. And he was a leading figure in a group known as the Covenanters, which basically was a bunch of Scottish Presbyterians who resisted the King of England's attempts to control the Church of Scotland. And so in defiance of the king's state church, Richard Cameron would preach out in the fields to those who would gather together, even as it came at a great price for them to gather together. It wasn't a sanctioned assembly. And so on July 22nd, 1680, Richard Cameron and a group of believers were meeting for worship out on the moors outside of a town uh, when suddenly they were surrounded by the king's troops. Richard Cameron was killed. The soldiers cut off his head. They cut off his hands. They then took his head and his hands into a nearby town, found his father, whose name was Alan Cameron, 
And in this effort to intimidate him, they showed him the severed head and hands and said, do you know who these belong to? To which Alan Cameron responded and said, I know them, I know them. They are my sons, my own dear sons. It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me or mine, but he has made his goodness and mercy to follow us all of our days. Now let me ask you this. How could a man ever respond that way unless he knew something personally about the hope of resurrection? Unless he had this deep incentive within his heart that only the resurrection provides a man. He knew that his son, though he had been brutally murdered on the moors of Scotland, he knew that his son was more alive than he had ever been and one day he would walk again with his son in the kingdom of God. And folks, let me tell you, that is hope and an incentive that only the resurrection can provide. Are you living with that incentive? Let's stand for prayer this morning. Do you know Jesus personally? Beyond the shadow of a doubt, are you sure that if you died today that you would go to heaven and that you have this hope of resurrection? Have you personally been brought into union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection? Are you a Christian? I'm not asking are you a religious person? Are you a church attender? Have you done something? I'm not asking that. I'm asking are you a believer? And you know that you've been brought in to union with Christ through faith. If not, then listen, heads bowed, eyes closed, why not right now in an attitude of repentance and faith confess your sin and your need for Christ? Believe the gospel. Believe Jesus that he died for you on the cross that he rose again from the dead. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And then the first act of obedience in your life as a believer is to go public in your faith and publicly profess faith in Christ through believer's baptism. And we'd like to help you do that. We're baptizing next week in our services. You can participate. You can come let one of our pastors know here in a moment. Let us know after the service. Get in contact with us this week in the church office. But Lord, thank you for the incentive that we have. As far as joy for the future is concerned and incentive to follow you in baptism. Lord, the incentive that we have to forego personal comforts for the sake of your mission. The incentive that we have to forsake sin and pursue holiness. All because of the resurrection, Lord, and the hope that we have. Wow. Lord, whatever issues that your people have dealt with this week, Lord, I pray that they be encouraged in light of the fact that the tomb of Jesus is empty. And because he lives, as believers, they too live. And that's a good spot to be. 
So Lord, we love you. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.